Okay, so we're going to be studying uh, Parashat uh, Noach this week, uh, which puts us technically one Shabbat behind the rest of the world, one Parashat behind the rest of the world, but that's okay. That way we've already read it and we're familiar with it. Maybe we gave some thought to it already and we can, uh, we can be in a better position to appreciate it. But as I did last week, so last week I, um, rather than focus on the story that we typically focus on, or the, the beginning of the Parashat Bereshit, which is uh, the standard, uh, maybe the standard most, most uh, the, the go-to topic for uh, people studying Bereshit is, of course, Adam and Chava, or the creation. These are the subjects that everyone is drawn to initially, and so that's what we did last, last year, we covered that. So this year I went into Hevel and Cain instead, because I thought it would be nice to look at some of the less popular stories, the stories that are given a little bit less attention and a little bit less love and, and, and delve into that. Because of course, in our first cycle of learning, we also went along with the, uh, the most popular and the most compelling stories. And we neglected some of the details along the way. So I thought we would do the same with Parashat Noach because Parashat Noach, of course, the centerpiece of the parasha is the destruction of the world and the reestablishment of uh, civilization, or I should say the initiation of the concept of civilization through Noach, because really the difference between pre-flood and post-flood um, world is not just a matter of, well, the first, um, you know, the first time around it was from Adam and the second time around it was from Noach. There was a more, more fundamental difference, which was that the first time around it was individualistic. It was, it was based upon individuals. It was based upon uh, the, um, there was no civilization to speak of. There was no law. There was no order. There was no society. There were no cities, really. There were no polities. There was no sense, really, of community. It was individuals operating on their own. And that's why the Torah really describes at the end of Parashat Bereshit that the strong dominated the weak. In other words, you had a situation which is the opposite of, of a just society where the people who wielded power, who were physically stronger or uh, capable of, um, of asserting their will, capable of imposing their interests on others with impunity basically did so. So whatever they wanted, they took, whether it was the, the wives of other people, whether it was the property of other people. And there was no recourse because there was no legal system. There was no real, there was no court system. There was no way for the person who was disadvantaged to uh, protect him or herself from the person who had advantage. And so this was really what led to destruction because when you have a situation like that, it's chaos basically. And, it, and there, there was no way to remediate the situation as it was, and therefore the, the world started over again. And that's the story of Noah. And what makes Noah unique, and we talked about this really last year when we talked about Parashat Noah, <laughs> what makes Noah unique is that he introduced the idea of civilization. He introduced the idea of society. He introduced the idea of law. Because even though Adam received one commandment, which was not to partake of the fruit that he wasn't supposed to partake of, and he was told to uh, work the garden and to protect the garden, but he wasn't given a system of laws. And even though according to the tradition, he did receive the first six of the seven mitzvot of B'nai Noach, he didn't need the one about not eating a limb of live animal because he didn't eat animals at all. But the other six he had, according to tradition. But it never says that in the Torah explicitly. Noach is the first person to whom God addresses actual commandments and says murder is something that is prohibited and if somebody commits murder, they have to be held accountable and executed for the murder and also to tell him that they, he shouldn't partake of the limb of a live animal. And so for the first time, you have a sense that there's some kind of legal order to the world. It's not going to be a free-for-all. It's not going to be chaotic. It's not going to be left to the devices of the people who wield the most power to decide whatever they want to do, to follow their whims and subject those who are defenseless to, uh, you know, uh, to whatever it is that they, uh, uh, that, you know, that they wish to impose. So this is the, this is the change in Noach. And this is the, really what actually the Ralbag asks a great question, a great philosophical question. Before I get to what I'm going to talk about tonight, which is this sort of just a uh, in a way, a rehashing of what we did last year, I think, touching upon uh, things that I had mentioned in the previous cycle of Parashiot that, uh, about the change from individualism to, to society. 
But this is one of the things that Ralph Bag, I believe, asked the question. It's a very good question. It bothered me also, and I was so happy to see that one of the traditional commentaries raised it. Because Hashem promises Noach that he's never going to destroy the world again. He says, I make a promise, I'm never going to destroy the world again. And that always struck me as arbitrary and unfair, actually. Because how can you, after you destroyed everybody who existed on earth, now you decide, you know what, I'm never going to do that again. That's not fair. I mean, so why didn't you make that decision before you destroyed everybody who lived before? So now, so now arbitrarily you decide that this is, you're, you're, you're drawing a line in the sand and saying you're not going to destroy people again. You're not going to bring a flood in the future. But what about the people who were wiped out by the first flood? How is that fair to them in retrospect? Because the implication is that even if humanity is deserving of a mabul again, this time I won't impose it. So that's almost like a slap in the face to the people who died in the mabul. Because it's saying that the people who died in the mabul, they were wiped out and then God afterwards decides and he makes a promise that he's never going to uh, destroy the world again in, this, in a similar fashion. So the Ralbag actually gives an answer that I think is very compelling. It's a good answer. He says, it doesn't mean arbitrarily that now Hashem is saying, I'm never going to bring a mabul again. That's not what it means. It means that Hashem is saying to Noah, I'm never going to allow human beings to descend to the level where a mabul would be necessary again. That's a different kind of promise than saying I'm never going to bring about a mabul again because I'm never going to bring about a mabul again would be, would be just arbitrary. It would mean that even that the mabul before was just, but now I'm not going to be just. Or the mabul before was unjust, and now I'm going to be fair. Either one of those interpretations is inappropriate in reference to Hashem. So the Ralbag solution is, 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 a, is a very compelling and uh, a very reasonable solution. He says what Hashem means is that this time around, Hashem is not going to allow humanity to descend to the depths of depravity that it did the first time around, so they'll never need a mabul again. Not... Huh? Okay, so meaning, okay, so, so I'll explain, yeah, so, why, so the question is why do you let them descend in the first place? Because, the, again, the difference between pre-Mabul and post-Mabul is that pre-Mabul was basically natural man and its natural state. And so individuals were driven by their desires and individuals, the, the powerful dominated the weak. The, uh, you know, and, and oppressed the weak, and there was no sense of order, and there was no sense of law, there was no sense of civilization in, the, in you know, as we know it. Noah establishes civilization from the beginning. So since from the very outset, that's why you don't see in Parashat Bereshit any kingdoms, you don't see any nations in Parashat Bereshit, even though there's also 10 generations, starting from Adam down to Noah, there are 10 generations, and it says all of them had sons and daughters, Right? And he had sons and daughters, Banimu Banot. They all have Banimu Banot. They have lots of kids for 10 generations, which is quite a long time. Okay? And yet, they never had any, uh, we, we don't see any nations being created. We don't see any, uh, any empires being built. Why? Because it was each man for himself or each woman for herself. There was no sense of a cohesive fabric of society. When Noah comes out, he comes out starting things off on a different foot. That's the idea, that Noah, it's not just let's do this over again with a different guy and maybe it's gonna be another failed experiment this time. That's not the idea of Noah. The idea of Noah is that he's consciously entering the scene with the idea that there's going to be civilization, that there's going to be order, that there's going to be uh, communities, and there's going to be nations, and we're going to be setting up the world with a sense of law and order and design and accountability and responsibility, and people are going to, if somebody kills somebody, they're going to be held accountable in a court of law. That's what it says. Right? Shofech dam ha'adam, ba'adam damo yishafech. If you kill a person, by the hand of a person, you will be killed. In other words, Hashem is saying that human beings have to take responsibility now for establishing a justice system. That's a totally new idea that didn't exist prior to who, who, who prosecutes uh, Cain for killing Evel? Hashem. Obviously, there was nobody else around at that time to do it. But the point is that there was no law, even the way the Midrash describes it. The Midrash says, and this is what the Midrash is trying to get at. The Midrash says that what did they do in the times of uh, 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 prior to the Mabul that was so bad? A person would pers purposely steal less than a pruta from somebody. 
less than a prutah means such an insignificant amount that they can't be held legally accountable. This is like the type of thing that we learn about in the Gemara. You know, less than a prutah is nothing. So yeah, but that adds up after a while. You steal less than a prutah here, less than a prutah there, less than a prutah again. After a while, it adds up. Anybody who deals with, you know, big bulk orders of anything knows that, you know, a fraction of a penny adds up after a while. So the fractions of the penny, mean, what does it mean that they were stealing less than a Shavet Prutah? They were so careful, they knew so much halacha that they knew the law, Jewish law about the Prutah. It doesn't mean that. What it means is that they were working around the system, the way that there, there was no way to hold them accountable. There was no way to hold the, to, to, to make them responsible for their actions because this, the, there was no system really to hold them accountable. They didn't even have to really work around the system because there was no system to hold them accountable. But the idea was that they, it, everything they were doing was under the radar of any kind of a system of justice or, a, uh, or an, orderly, uh, an orderly structure of society. That's what it was before the Mabul. And that's what, clear from the Torah because the Torah says that the people would just take whatever women they wanted and they would, you know, they would pillage whoever they wanted. And after the Mabul, now Hashem is telling Noach that there's going to be society, and there's going to be laws, and there's going to be rules and regulations and so on. That's what the, how the Ralbag explains it. He says, because Noach is setting up society differently, and now it's going to be orderly, so that will prevent humanity as a whole from ever descending to the level that would necessitate a Mabul. It doesn't mean that Hashem, if he saw exactly the same condition in mankind that prevailed before the Mabul, would arbitrarily decide not to be just. Not what it means. It means that Hashem is starting Noah out in the direction that would prevent such a thing from happening. I see that Daniel Korn is asking a question. I have to unmute him. Okay. Yes. Um, my question was, we kind of answered it right now, but regarding... He said he doesn't mean that he won't do it because we see literally in this parasha that he does, you know, there's Sodom. So he does want right. to go out, but he doesn't necessarily, it's not the world, but it's still, he's still showing that I'm still going to do justice. Right, of course. So, yeah, so there's definitely a sense of justice. And, and that's the same thing that, uh, that it says that uh, the Mitzrim thought, oh, we want, Hashem will not judge us because uh, the, the Midrash says that the Mitzrim also thought that they would be able to get away with what they were doing because Hashem said he's never going to bring a Mabul. But that was, uh, you know, that's talking about the whole world. That doesn't mean that one particular society or one particular uh, group might not be subject to uh, divine punishment. That just means that Hashem is never... He says, Hashem, kol chai kasher Hashem says, I will never destroy all Hashem of humanity. Still after him. Huh? Hashem is still, why is Hashem like immediately still afterwards trying to like, to, to show his, you know, like, you would think that there would be, you know, peace or not? Well, like, Saddam right happened a very long time after the Mabul. You're talking about a, almost a millennium. Because, uh, because... Noah lived, uh, you know, lived 950 years. And Avram Avinu was born when, uh, the way to remember it is that Avram Avinu was 58. He was Noah years old when Noah died. When, right? So, so that's, that's, it's, a, it's a mnemonic at these. So, so Avram was overlapped a little bit with Noah, but that's already 500 years after the Mabul. And then Avram Avinu himself was an older person, let's say he was around 100. So you're talking about 600 years later after the Mabul that Saddam happened. So it wasn't like a recent history. That would be like saying that the Spanish Inquisition is recent history. You know, it was, it was, a, long time before, it was a long time after. Actually, it was, it was, more, it was, it was uh, further than that because the Spanish Inquisition was like around the end of the 15th century. We're only five centuries later. This was six at least. So it's not, it's not like it happened right after. But, um, but Hashem says from the beginning that this time things will be set up in such a way to prevent, uh, to prevent the, um, uh, the, uh, the amabul from ever being necessary again. Amabul meaning amabul that wipes out everybody. Because it says, doesn't mean that there won't be individuals or even groups that need to be punished. Now, so what I had said in the beginning was that I wasn't going to talk about the amabul this year because we talked about it last year, but we ended up talking about it. What I wanted to actually talk about was Migdal Bavel, because I think that that is a story that isn't given as much love as the story of Noah. A lot of times we get caught in the beginning of the parasha, we make it halfway through, and we always say, next year, 
We're going to learn the ha- other half of the parasha. And then what happens? Next year we come and we'd start from the beginning again and we forget to do it again. And this cycle repeats. So I thought this year we would focus a little bit on what is the meaning of the story of, um, of Migdal Bavel. And obviously the story of Migdal Bavel is not a standalone story. It's connected to the stories that came before. And it is also related to the stories that came afterwards. But um, it's in chapter 11 of, uh, of uh, Sefer Boreshit, Yud Aleph. It's on page 48 in this book. That the people had one language, Udvarim Achadim. Dvarim means their ideas were the same. Okay? Dvarim are the ideas of a person. Dvarim means words, but it also means concepts. Okay? It means that they had the same idea and they had the same language. They traveled from the east. They came to a, like a valley in Shinar, and they settled there. And they had a very strange idea, which was, Let's make bricks and burn them. The idea was to make them very hard and resistant to, you know, destruction. And so the levena, the bricks, became like their rocks, meaning instead of using stone to build, they built with, uh, with, with bricks. And this mud or this, um, the uh, clay became like their, uh, you know, what, they, what would make the, like the cement to make the uh, stones stick together. They said, let's build a city and a tower that the head of it reaches heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Lest we be scattered across the entire world. Now the question is, First of all, everybody wonders, you know, what exactly is the problem? What, what, what's the, what is so objectionable about this is one question that the, the commentaries grapple with. So they want a, to build a tall tower and to uh, stay united. It sounds very good. You know, they, they, they want to stay united and stay together, protect each other, support each other. It's a lot better than what they had before. What they had before was everybody fighting and uh, trying to kill each other or trying to take advantage of each other. Now we have... A situation where at the very least they want to stay united and they want to have a big tower so like the commentaries say so that no matter how far they stray from their neighborhood they can always see the big tower and come back you know meaning they will never get lost people get spread out they'll always see the tower they'll know how to find their way back and they won't you know they, they will they will not spread apart that way so it was the concept was or would seem to be, let's say, would seem to be the idea of unity, that they wanted to stay together. Now, obviously, even in the shot of the reading of the text, there is one problem. The one problem that there is, is that Hashem had said to fill the land. Right? Hashem had said, spread out and fill the land. And they're not doing that. They're staying in one place. So if you're reading the text very simply, we're going to make it more complicated in a second, but if you're reading the text very simply, what do you say? What was the problem? Oh, that Hashem told them spread out across the world and, and, and repopulate the world. And they said, no, we're going to stay together in one place. Pen nafut. We, 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 don't want to, uh, we don't want to spread out. We want to stay in one location, everybody together. That's what it sounds like on the surface is the problem. But the rabbis make a bigger deal out of the migdal, out of the tower, than they do out of the wanting to stay together. And they say that this tower was meant to be a tower that they would climb up and fight against Hashem. They wanted to climb up in this tower that says, it reached up to the heavens. And they would fight against Hashem from the top of the tower. Now, we know that Noah was still alive at the time that the migdal was built. Avraham Avinu, according to many, was also alive the idea that they thought that they could climb to the top of the tower and fight against Hashem shouldn't be taken in a, the most literal sense. The idea that they wanted to fight against Hashem is that they wanted to replace Hashem with this Migdal. They wanted to replace Hashem with the tower. And you can see it from the words, V'naselanu Hashem. We will make for ourselves a name. What does it mean to make for ourselves a name? Name means to be important. We'll attri- we will give to ourselves the greatness. We will give to ourselves the glory. So previously, normally, what, what were the giants called, by the way? Nephilim. 
המה הגיבורים אשר מעולם? אנשי השם. אנשי השם. What are אנשי השם? Important people. אנשי השם were individuals who were very important. And prominent, and they had the power, and they had the influence, and everybody, you know, probably feared them. Actually, I don't know about looked up to them, but at the very least, feared them. Vinaselanu Hashem means we're not going to be Anshe Hashem as individuals. We're going to be Vinaselanu Hashem. We, as a society, will be what what is great. We, as a society, will be what is prominent. What is the focus? In other words, it's rather than the individual ego, it's the communal sense of importance that's going to replace that. It's the community, the state will replace the awareness of God. Before, it was the individual's desires, ego, instinct, instinctual, you know, pursuit of instinctual gratification or power, whatever it was that replaced any awareness of God. Now it's going to be the glory of the state. We'll have the tallest Make the tallest skyscraper in the world. Why do people make tall skyscrapers? Why, why do these people make these tall skyscrapers today? It wasn't for practical reasons, at least not in the beginning. Maybe now there's no space. You know, so they have to build buildings very tall because, because they don't have space to, to spread out. But Who does? Emirates. Yeah, for sure. But that, that's, that's for sure. But even in, let's say, in New York City, in the beginning, having the tallest building in the world is the tallest. What's, why is that so significant? Because it's Venase Lanushem. It shows how great the city is. We have the tallest buildings. When you, as we mentioned before, and we mentioned in a previous class, I think it was, we mentioned it last week, that when you go into, a, in, into a, an urban area, as opposed to go, like we talked about Cain, he built this, the first sort of city. I mean, it was just really his family. But he built the first city in this, because a city, urban life, distracts a person from God. It disconnects a person from Hashem. And skyscrapers especially, all you see around you is, is concrete. All you see around you is the handiwork of human beings. You don't see God's creation. You go out to the rural areas, you see everything is God's country. They call it for a reason all you see is 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 Hashem's handiwork and so the idea of making a skyscraper literally that's what they said it's not literally a skyscraper but it goes to heaven right what's a skyscraper it scrapes the sky it's touching the heaven it's the same idea right that's what a skyscraper is meaning we're going to make something that when you look up instead of seeing you know God's handiwork and seeing the the, the stars and the moon and Hashem what Hashem created like David HaMelech talks about, that we read in, when we read Birkat HaLevana, when we, when we have the new, uh, uh, after Rosh Chodesh, we read Birkat HaLevana, we bless the new moon, and we say those psukim from David HaMelech, when I see the heavens, the work of your fingers, right? I see the, everything that you, that you established in the heavens, and I, I see the greatness of Hashem, instead of seeing that, you see this skyscraper. And there's so much smog in the city, you can't even see the sky sometimes. Right, so that it, it blots out Hashem. So the idea of the Migdal is to make the state the center of um, a, a, of our focus, not the individual, but the state. Maybe they thought, "Hey, we learned our lesson. We learned that having each man for himself, each woman for himself, for herself, is dis- is too destructive. It's too dangerous. It leads to the complete implosion." of humanity, as we saw in the Mabul, and, and people cannot live a secure life. They're constantly living in fear of a more powerful person coming and taking what's theirs. But if we have a sense of unity, and we have a sense of we together will build this city and this skyscraper that is going to give us prominence and glory, that the honor of the state we can, we, we, will, will unite us. The state will replace Hashem instead of the individual. And really throughout Bereshit, this idea of the word Shem is very critical. The idea of the word Shem. Because the very first, what is, what is the very beginning of the Torah? It's Hashem giving names to everything in the creation. Hashem calls this light. He calls this darkness. He calls this Shamayim. He calls this ocean. He gives names to everything. And then Adam, what does he do with Adam? He brings the animals and he says, Lirot ma'ikralo. He wants to see what Adam will call them. And whatever Adam gave it as a name, that was its name. That doesn't mean, art, like the, the commentaries explain, that doesn't mean that randomly, he said, this is a cat. Oh, so now it's called a cat because he just made up the names as he was going along. Why would Hashem want him to just make up random names as he's going along? What kind of an art is that? 
You can call this ba, this is bu, this is e, this, what, what's, what's the significance of making our arbitrary names? What it means is that the names captured something about what the thing really was. In other words, it were reflected an understanding of what those animals really were. And that's why it was a value. That's what the commentaries explained was the significance of calling the names. So it wasn't, and that's what it means, whatever he called their names, that was what they really were, doesn't mean that that was what they were because he made up the name. It means that the names he gave were an accurate representation of what those creatures were. He got it right, it's what it's saying. Means he got it right each time. How smart he was, how wise he was. So there's a difference between, understand, uh, between the shem as something, the name that we use as something that reflects an understanding of something outside ourselves versus we create for ourselves a name. Like a person creates an image for themselves. It's something artificial. It's something made up. It's not something genuine. So the, the idea of name is a, it's a word that we use to point to something, but it can be something in our imagination. It doesn't have to be something real. If it's something outside of our imagination, that name is really signifying something in reality. And that's what Adam was doing. He was naming the animals and what he was saying was true. But Hashem is let's create for ourselves a sense of importance, just like the Anshei Hashem made for themselves a, pr- a position of importance in the eyes of other people. But it was really, cre- it was created by their own fantasy and their imposition of that fantasy on other people and dominating them. So, and the other case of Shem, of course, is Enosh. Enosh, the son of Shet, the grandson of Adam, Azuchal Liko B'Shem Hashem. At that time, they began to call in the name of Hashem. And the rabbis mostly, mostly, not all of them, because the Ramban has a different idea, and even Onkelos has a different idea. But, the, uh, but most of the commentaries, the, 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 the classic interpretation of it, Rashi and the Chazal and the Rambam, is that is bad. It means they started making up a name for Hashem. And what does it mean making up a name for Hashem? It means making up a, con- a conception of Hashem that was distorted. Specifically, the way the Rambam traces the whole development of idolatry is that they started worshipping nature or worshipping the stars with the idea that, oh, we're honoring Hashem by worshipping the stars. And then after a while, they decided instead of standing outside, let's make images of the stars. I'm, I'm very much encapsulating what he says because what he says is like several pages long. But basically, over time, they sl- in the beginning, they were worshipping the stars thinking they were honoring Hashem. After a while, they kind of forgot the Hashem part, slowly. And they made it an independent thing. And they went so far as they made hechalot. They made temples where they would put these images of the heavens instead of the actual... They weren't even looking at God's handiwork anymore because they just made statues. In other words, the Rambam charts how they got further and further away from anything real. At least in the beginning, at least. I mean, it's still idolatry. But at least they were looking at God's handiwork and maybe there was a chance that they would see something. After all, that's how Avraham Avinu discovered Hashem. But they cut themselves off even from that. Everything was separate from nature and, and, and artificial, and they were worshiping things that they had created with their own hands. So that's In other words, Enosh came up with the idea, let's make a pathway, let's make the pathway to understanding God easier for people. Because Hashem is too abstract. He's too transcendent. He's too holy. A person cannot conceive of Hashem in any way. So, and then people are off, you know, they feel put off by that. They can't connect to God. So what we should do is we should tell them, see these stars and everything? Uh, you can't imagine God, but you see God's handiwork, bow to these and realize this was made by Hashem. That was what Enosh thought. He thought that was a great idea. But the problem is that the people got attached to the concrete expression and they forgot about the abstract idea of Hashem. So, they, so it undermined the purpose. But that's what the... By the way, I always tell the, I always tell the younger people this. And I, I think I told you, when I was a kid... We ended the Aliyah, Azuchal Likob Hashem Hashem. That was the end of the Aliyah. If you look at the old Chumashim, the Hertz Chumash, or old Tikunim, you will see that the end of the Aliyah is Azuchal Likob Hashem. You have one? Yeah, Azuchal Likob Hashem. I'm sure it's in there because we used to end it there. And the reason why was because I guess they were following the opinion that 
was positive that people started having organized worship of Hashem, they were praying to Hashem, they were whatever. So the more positive spin on it. But later generations or whatever said, you know, there are some that say that this is a bad thing and you're not supposed to end an aliyah on a negative thing. So in, is it in there? Does it have, does it have it? No? You didn't get there yet? Then it, when you, so, so they switched it to, they switched the uh, place where you stop for that aliyah. So now all the tikkunim that you get now have a different uh, breakup of the aliyah than when I was a kid. So still, even to this day, I have like a natural habit that I want to stop the aliyah at that point because I, that when I was a kid, like they say, girsad kuta, what you learn when you're a child, like sticks with you. It's hard to get away from it. So, uh, <clears throat> so it naturally, it feels like an ending to me because we always end it there. But it's, but it's seen as a negative thing. So again, you have the word name. Name means the concept in my mind. The idea in my mind, the word refers to something that my mind grasps. The word is something that brings it before the eye, my mind's eye, basically, when you say a word. And so the, the, the idea that Enosh made a way to think of Hashem, but it was a way to think of Hashem that wasn't good. That's, a, that, you know, that's, that's basically how the rabbis interpret it. They began devising ways to conjure up an awareness of God that were not kosher. Okay? But is it? Is it? Yeah. So I, I thought so. I, I was sure. Because when I was growing up, the Hertz Chumash was the Chumash. No, there was no Hertz Chumash. So we, we, were, we followed the breakup of the Hertz Chumash. I don't think that's the main reason, though. I doubt it. I think the reason why is because Unculus translates it as a positive. So, and then somebody came along at some point, or maybe other communities yeah, said... I mean, if you're a Christian yeah. reader of the text, the, 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 there's a break there. The assumption is that this is a good There's thing. a break, right. So this is a break. Maybe, uh, yeah, I'm not sure, but yeah. And also afterwards it says... Right, so it sounds like a new thing. Yeah, yeah so it sounds like a new thing. But, anyway, but the reason why they don't do it nowadays is because they say because it's negative. But apparently they were, they, were, they were giving a more charitable explanation before. But in, be that as it may. So this is the idea of Shem. The idea of Shem is the name is, has to do with what, what we're focused on. And so when Adam is naming, meaning he's identifying real things outside of himself and he's giving it a name, that's good. But when you're using a name to conjure up something that is not real, Anshe Hashem, who create an image for themselves that's imposing and frightening, or creating a way of thinking of God that is appealing to the masses but is not really accurate, is not really healthy. Or you say, we're going to build the skyscraper and we're going to create for ourselves a sense that we are eternal or that the state is eternal, that's our identity. Kind of similar to uh, you know communism or... Uh, or, or like the Japanese, the idea of the kamikazes, you know, even these people that were godless uh, nations, but they would die for the state because the state was everything. And, that, and their identity and their sense of significance was tied to the great, their nationalism, basically. It was a type of a nationalism. And so th- it makes sense then that actually... Um, the rabbis say that Nimrod was the leader of the building of the of Migdal Bavel. So, and Nimrod was also the one who, uh, who, according to the rabbis, persecuted Avram. Because he didn't want Avram undermining the state religion. And if you, so in, if you, if you look earlier on in the text, it says that, that Nimrod was gibor tzayid lifnei Hashem. He was a mighty hunter before Hashem. And the rabbis say, what does mighty hunter mean? Same thing that they say by, uh, by Esav, who was also gibor tzayid, right? He was ish tzayid, right? So, so in the, um, in, it means a person who traps animals. That's what the pshat is. The simple meaning is that he was a great hunter. And because he was a great hunter and a dominant personality and figure, therefore he rose to be also somebody who dominated others and who was able to become the first king. And it says Nimrod was a king. It talks about the beginning of his kingdom and all that. So yeah, he, he started as a hunter and he went into being a politician. You can use that for, you can take that in whatever direction you want. But the idea is that the sense of dominating is of being a dominant personality is in Nimrod. And of course, the idea of being a dominant personality is, it comes into conflict with the idea of recognizing Hashem. Because you become the center of, the, of focus. You become the one who's imposing your will and your design on the people. Now, you can use that for bad or for good. It's not necessarily a bad or a good in and of itself, just like many things in life are not necessarily intrinsically bad or good. He could have used the influence he had, his ability to dominate, his ability to 
uh, as the, you know, the rabbis take it further, they always interpret, and I think it's very brilliant, they, they, just like they say by Esav, he was a hunter, obviously, for real. It says he was a, you know, Yodea Tzayid. He, he was definitely a hunter, but also they was tricking his father. Right, that it says that Said means that he knew how to trick. He knew how to fool his father into thinking he was religious. And in the same way, it says Nimrod was able to talk people into things. He was able to persuade. Because in order to be able to gain control and gain dominance, you need a sense of the vulnerabilities of others and be able to capitalize on them. Whether it's animals that you're trapping or it's people that you're trapping. There's a similar mentality there. And so Nimrod became this dominant figure who orchestrated this idea of making people derive their sense of purpose and their sense of greatness from the state. And of course, he was the head of state, so that especially served him well. But when Avraham Avinu challenged that and said no, that it always says that, that Avraham came, it also says Avraham called out in the name of Hashem. But he called out in the name of Hashem to correct the distortions that had been become prevalent uh, in humanity. So Avram was trying to reorient people towards an, a recognition of God in the true sense. And that's why when it comes to Avram calling out in the name of Hashem, it means drawing their attention back to the true understanding of Hashem that had been lost. But what, so what happens in the end? That Hashem says, Hashem notes the... Uh, this city and this tower. Note, and it really in the text, it emphasizes both the city and the tower, which is everyone fixates on the tower. That's Megidal Bavil. It's a tower. It's a tower. But actually the tower is just the centerpiece. It was actually the city surrounding the tower. In other words, it means that the society revolves around this idea that we've blotted out God. That's why they're trying to say that the tower is where they would go to fight against God. It means that this is a godless society where the greatness of our, our nationalism is what's replaced God. Notice what Hashem says. They have one language and it's one nation and this is what they decide to do. Meaning, what is it? The critique is very profound. He's not saying being one nation and having one language is bad. He's saying, and this is what they decide to do. What an advantage of unity that they have. They have unity, they're together. They could do anything. And what do they decide to do? Create a monument to their own ego, basically. Create a monument to themselves. That's what they decide to do with it. And now there will not be anything standing in their way for anything that they want to do. Any scheme that they have, there will be nothing standing in their way anymore. In other words, they have unity and their sense of unity is so great and their sense of focus on the self is so great that there's nothing standing in their way. There's nothing to blunt the force of whatever they want to pursue because there's no, there's no conflict that they're going to run into because they're all working together. Now, obviously, there can be natural disasters and other such things that could come in the way, but meaning to say that there's, everybody is under one umbrella. Everybody is thinking the same way. Everybody is acting the same way. Everybody is speaking the same way. It's groupthink, completely uniform view of the world. And that this view of the world has sealed off an awareness of God, sealed it out. So now, what are they going to do now? They're, they're going to go in the wrong direction. So Hashem says, I'm going to make it that I mess up their language and they won't understand each other anymore. And that's what happened. So they stopped doing it and they were spread out. This is why it was called Bavil, because Hashem mixed up the language and he spread them out across the entire world. Now, do we understand this? Obviously, when we teach, when, when we read this, it sounds like this happened a miracle overnight. You know, that the people woke up and one day they, you know, one night they all understood each other and everything was terrific. And then the next day, nobody understood what anybody was saying. You know, that's how they kind of portrayed in the Midrashim. But um, really, I think what, the, what this story is trying to explain, just like the, the story of, um, of Gan Eden is trying to explain why human beings find themselves in the situation that they do and the circumstances that they do. The story of Migdal Bavil is trying to explain why we are not like this. Because doesn't it make sense? I mean, doesn't it make more sense that since all of humanity came from a common source that we would all speak the same language and have the same culture and be located in the same general geographic area and, and be united and, and be uniform in so many ways? It makes much more sense than what you see now, which is the diversity of language, of culture, of geography, and so on. So how did that come to be? 
And it's explaining to you through the story of the Migdal Bavel, in reality, this falling apart of the, the initial unity that human beings enjoyed may have taken a long time. It may have taken a while. It doesn't say that Hashem made magic and in one second all of a sudden nobody understood what anybody else was saying. But it's this, when the Torah speaks, the Torah speaks in concepts. It's not telling you every step of what happened, meaning and on the first day there was a little bit of a change, some people started to think a little bit differently. No, it's charting for you the big picture. The big picture is that it was Hashem's will that this project would not work out, that there would be conflicts that developed. And of course the Midrash kind of like uh, dramatizes them, you know, that somebody misunderstood someone, so he punched him and he killed him with the brick. And, you know, they have all these stories that are very entertaining. But the idea of the story is to capture the idea that conflict emerged among the people and from the conflict and the differences that emerged. So people started to grow apart. And as they grew apart, of course, language and culture, um, differences in language and culture developed. But the beauty of it is, of the story is, and I think this is the, the main thing is that Hashem says, they ha- they're all together. They have one language and one pers- purpose. What did they decide to do with it? Being unified is great. In fact, it says, if the, Migdal, the people of Migdal Bavel rejected Hashem, they didn't believe in Hashem, Right? There's a famous, um, the famous, uh, uh, you know, the people in the times of the Mabul, they recognized that God existed. They just were acting crazy and acting, uh, you know, acting animalistically and they were destroyed. The people of Migdal Bavel went to war with God, so to speak. They specifically tried to engineer a society that would exclude God. They weren't destroyed. What's the reason? What do the rabbis say? Because they had unity. They had achdut. There was something that was, there was a, a, a meritorious quality to the unity that they had, even though they utilized it for the wrong purpose. But so the idea is that in a, in a situation where the, the name of Hashem is not known, in a situation where clarity in our understanding of what the true values are is not known, is not, you know, is, is not uh, a common possession of the people, it's better for people to have diversity. Hashem is saying, if you're materialistic and nationalistic and egotistic and excluding God, it's more dangerous for all of humanity to be united and to be together and to have the same thoughts and the same ideas and the same speech because then they're going to pursue evil ends with nothing to stop them. It's better that you have different nations with different languages and different agendas and they'll conflict with each other and they'll put checks and balances on each other as a result of that then have everybody together. In a, an ideal situation where everyone on, the, in, on earth recognized Hashem, then it says what? What does it say in Tsefania? It says, I'm going to give humanity Safabrua. Right? So I'm going to give them one clear language to serve Hashem, Shechem Echad, as one unit. Right? Like we say, we also say in Rosh Hashanah Tfilah. Right? kulam aguda achat. Make all of human beings one group that will serve Hashem too. In other words, there's an idea that unity is great when it's utilized for the right purpose, when it's unity around the right purpose. But when it's unity around a nefarious purpose, it's the worst. It becomes mind control. It becomes a type of a communism and, and, and an ideological, uh, you know, a brainwashing that, pro, that prevents actual engagement with the truth. And that's why Nimrod is the very person who's persecuting Avraham Avinu and all the Midrashim. Nimrod is the one who throws him into the fiery furnace. He doesn't want somebody to challenge the orthodoxy that is what's supporting his North Korea or whatever you want to call it. You know, actually, I'm sure it was much wealthier and more prosperous than North Korea, whatever he had, which practically any nation would be. Right? But whatever his, his vision of um, ultra-nationalism with him at the center, and, and why, so you might ask, if, the, if it's true that they had ultranationalism, so why were they also idol worshippers then? The answer is because idolatry actually fits in with ultranationalism. You, it's not contradictory. I mean, communism excluded, communism in China today and, 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 and in the USSR of, of the previous years, excluded religion as a matter of, you know, of doctrine. But really you could have an, an, a, a type of thing like Migdal Bavel, you can have a statism like this with idolatry because what is the idolatry basically making up for? The areas that we don't have control over. 
In other words, everyone has to acknowledge that we can't control the rain. As great as Nimrod is and as great as our state is, we know we don't have control over the rain. We know we don't have control over the wind. We know we don't have control over the soil. So who's controlling all of those things? Oh, it must be that there are gods out there. So, we, so part, of the religious, part of the society was placating those idolatrous gods. But the ultimate goal was always for the self. The ultimate goal was not that we care about those gods in and of themselves. We don't care about those gods in and of themselves. They're only there to serve, meaning we only care about them insofar as they serve our needs to promote our Shem that we're establishing as the center of the universe. Our, our nation is the center of the universe. That's what we really want to get out of it. So, it's, so as opposed to when it comes to worshiping Hashem, when it, when, worshiping Hashem means that, no, you're subordinate to a higher purpose. Your unity as a society is instrumental to something higher than yourself. You don't just worship Hashem because you want something from Him. In fact, in Aleinu L'Shabach, what do we say? Shem ishtachavim palelim El Elo Yoshia, my teacher told me this many years ago, like 20, 30 years ago, said, made a beautiful observation. He said, it says in the Alein Ol they worship, they bow to Hevel Varik, to meaningless idols. And the other nations pray to a God, Lo Yoshia, who doesn't save them. So what should it really say next? We pray to the God who does save. But it doesn't say that. It says, We bow down to the King of Kings, Hashem, who created the heavens and created the earth, and so on and so forth. We don't mention anything about Hashem saves us. Why? Because we don't worship Hashem because He saves us. He saves us so we can worship Him. We don't worship Him because He saves us. In other words, His saving of us is a means to an end that we would be able to recognize Him. But not that we worship him as an exchange. We're worshiping God and Hashem is going to, so that Hashem, to bribe Hashem, so he'll do something for us. That's not the idea. So, the, so a society like Nimrod society would have idolatry at the center. But what, because you need the idolatry to support the aspects of the state, of the invincibility of the state that are clearly, you know, there are cracks in the foundation a little bit because everyone knows that you don't really control everything. But... Avraham Avinu's idea that no, even the state itself should be subordinate to a higher purpose. The state is not the focus. Humanity can't be at the center of everything. The real center of everything is Hashem. And we have to abandon this focus on ourselves and call out in the name of Hashem, meaning use our energies to focus on something higher. That compromises the idea of the centrality of us that we are really the focus, that we need to be at the center. And so that's the, the conflict between Avraham Avinu and somebody like Nimrod or a situation or, or a, a, a society like the one that they tried to create in Migdal Bavil. And Hashem is saying that in a situation like this, diversity is better. Diversity is better, first of all, because it blunts the power of any corrupt society, any one corrupt society, because they're limited by other societies. But another reason, which is that if you have group think, that there's only one way to think all the time, there's only one way to think, there's only one way to see things, there's only one way to believe, there's only one way to, 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 to perceive the phenomena around you, and that's everyone is indoctrinated the same way, how is anyone ever going to emerge who's going to see the truth? What enables somebody like Abraham Avinu to emerge? is that there are different cultures and there are different societies. And you know, well, people here believe this and people there believe that. And people in other parts of the world do differently. And the very fact that there's diversity opens up to the person's mind the possibility that nobody really knows the ultimate truth and that we can discover the ultimate truth. And that's what allowed, perhaps, Avraham Avinu to realize, it says in, the Rambam says in Hilchot Avodat Kochavim, that, 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 that Avraham Avinu realized how everyone had gone astray, how everyone had lost their way. He was able to see that. But part of what it enables us to see, imagine growing up in a society, imagine you grew up in North Korea, right, where, where you're not allowed access to any information except what the state gives you. You're not allowed access to anything. No cultures you're exposed to, no different thoughts, different ideas, different ways of doing things. You believe that this is the only way, this is the right way, this is the absolute way. So it's a brainwashing process. What's the likelihood that somebody from a culture like that will be able to break free? They sometimes interview some expats from North Korea. It's very, it's very scary. They say that they grew up believing that Kim Jong-un could read their thoughts. 
That's what they were told. They believe that everything they have comes from him. He's responsible for everything I have. Like, instead of Birkat HaMazon, they believe that, like, we have to thank our, our, our supreme leader. I'm not kidding. They, they, if, you, if you watch one of these documentaries, it's very scary. But they limit access for anyone from the outside to see it. So they really have to do, like, some dangerous uh, operations to get in there and to really film this. Because everyone there also has to stay on message all the time. Because if they are seen that they're hesitant, they're all, they'll be killed. So they, they, it's really a brainwashing. But you see what would happen if, God forbid, the world was like that. You know? And that's why uh, that, that's the, Hashem says the problem with, you, with an ultra unif, you know, unification of mankind is that they have the wrong values. If you had the right values and the right purpose, so then as Tzifanya says, the Navi Tzifanya says, one day that will be ideal that everyone has the right language. Hashem will have one name, meaning everybody will recognize the same idea of Hashem one day. That would be great if everybody was unified around that. But to be unified around any other purpose where all of humanity took up that purpose, that can be a dangerous situation to be in. And that's the, that's the lesson, I think, of Migdal Bavel and how it paves the way for Avram Avinu to emerge on the scene. Because now we have from this the 70 nations that come from Noah, each one with its own particular qualities. And of course, Avram Avinu kind of embodying something in the middle, um, something across between Adam and Noah, across between an individual, because he leaves society actually, he leaves his home, he leaves his family, he leaves his his culture. So in that way, he's an individual, but at the same time, he's, just, he's trying to establish a movement and ultimately establish a, 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 a nation, ultimately establish a nation, but a nation that would be unified around the proper uh, recognition of Hashem rather than being unified around its own egotistic or nationalistic interests as the, uh, you know, as, as the ultimate purpose. So that's, that's the, why Migdal Bavil is such a very important story because it talks about both the, the positive side and the dangerous side of unity or of um, uniformity in, uh, you know, among human beings. And I, and I think it's, it's really a very deep story. And the stories in Breshit, particularly in Breshit and Noach, are foundational stories for a reason because they cut to the essence of you can, all, you can find echoes of every story in Breshit in modern times because really what they're reflecting is human nature and the nature of society in which we live. Uh, and all of these uh, limitations and all these problems and all of these potential solutions are still just as relevant today, obviously, as, as they were then. Be'ezrat Hashem will continue with Lech Lecha next week. I appreciate everyone coming. And now we have also video as well as uh, audio. I don't know how good the video is, is going to look, but we'll see. We'll see how it comes out. Yeah. Why, why did the, why did the, God wait so long to give the Torah to God to do that?